Uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be concluding the chapter this morning, verses 27 through 31. The title to our message is How the Exodus Began. And just remember that as we read this word that uh, God has given to us in the Scripture everything that we need for life and godliness. Amen. Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is not to come and hear a lecture. Um, our desire this morning is to hear the Holy Spirit speaking through your word to us. And so, Father, we pray that the preacher's words would not be words of man's wisdom. That they would be a demonstration of your spirit and your power. That our faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, this morning's passage uh, serves as the transition from the plot setup to the plot itself. So in chapter 5, if you just look ahead with your eyes, you're going to see that the battle begins, the war of the gods ensues. And so the temptation here is just to quickly pass over these verses and get on with the action. But I would say that that would be a mistake because these verses encapsulate how the Exodus began. Meaning, these verses show us what Yahweh brings to the table and what Israel is bringing to the table. And here is the spoiler alert for the morning. Though it seems on the surface that uh, Israel is convinced of Moses' mission, though it appears that they believe, the truth is, is that this belief here is duplicitous. It is two-faced. Yahweh doesn't begin saving a people who, uh, with, with a people who love and trust him. Uh, he begins the exodus with a people who are still far from him, that are his enemies. And I, I, would, I would just um, say to you this morning that this is why Exodus is a paradigm of the whole gospel. We heard this in our assurance verse this morning from Pastor Jason that while we were still weak, uh, at the right time, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, God shows his love for us in while we were still sinners. Christ died while we were still enemies. Um, the gospel, 
uh, which is the true and better exodus of the New Testament, uh, begins truly with everything going wrong on the human side of the equation. And that's how the exodus begins. Everything is wrong on the human side of the equation. Pharaoh Uh, The dragon incarnate has enslaved and murdered Israel. Moses, the hand-picked deliverer, is both doubting and disobedient to his Lord. And here you have Israel, as we'll see this morning, having a counterfeit faith. When push comes to shove at the end of the day, what Israel wants is for God to leave them alone. So if the human element prevailed, the exodus would have never happened. But thanks be to God. Uh, the Exodus is not about how Israel loved God, but about how, is, about how God loved Israel. He showed his love to Israel while she was still weak, while she was still ungodly, while she was still his enemy. That's how the Exodus began. So we're going to see from our verses this morning three points. Uh, The exodus began with precious promises. The exodus began with counterfeit faith. And the exodus began with undeserved love. So let's take these one at a time. First of all, the exodus began with precious promises. Uh, So last time we were together, we saw that... um, Moses had a stop at the Motel 6. Him and his wife uh, had a fight over circumcision. Uh, The angel of the Lord showed up to kill Moses. Uh, They both repented, albeit imperfectly, and they circumcised the boy, and then Zipporah and the two sons go back to Midian. We don't see them again until Exodus chapter 18. So Moses is on his way. Now what follows... In these verses is God fulfilling his promises to Moses. And there are at least three promises that God fulfills here. Promise number one is that God sent Aaron. God sent Aaron. Look at verse 27 with me. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. After 40 years of not seeing each other, 40 years of not knowing whether his brother is still alive, God shows up, tells him to go to the mountain of God, to Mount Horeb, and Aaron is so glad in his heart that he kisses his brother. But this isn't, of course, a chance meeting at all. This is precisely what God had promised Moses. Look Back with me at verse 14. Halfway through the verse. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Promise fulfilled. Fulfillment number two. Promise number two. God equipped Aaron. Look at verses 28 and 30. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Now notice here it's the elders of the 
people of Israel that Moses and Aaron are speaking to. Uh, by this time, the population of Israel was around 2.5 million people. Uh, so they addressed the main leadership that was actually still in existence in spite of their slavery. But the takeaway here is that Aaron is the mouthpiece of Moses, just as God had promised. Uh, just glancing back at verses 15 and 16, we see that God promised that he would put his words in Aaron's mouth and then Aaron would speak to the people for Moses. Promise fulfilled. Fulfillment number three. God caused Israel to listen to Moses. God caused Israel to listen to Moses. What do we see in, in these verses? Well, Israel listened to what Moses and Aaron had to say. Remember, this was the very thing that Moses feared, that they would not listen to him. Uh, starting in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 9, in 19 verses, uh, God is reassuring Moses that the people of Israel would listen to him and accept his leadership. Specifically, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, and they will listen to your voice. And so here is the third promise fulfilled in this passage. And that brings us then to our first principle this morning, kind of three little big ideas this morning. First principle is this, that our redemption begins with a God who never lies. Our redemption begins with a God who never lies. Dear congregation, have you ever just considered how many times the scripture says something like, and thus was the word of God fulfilled, and thus God accomplished his promise? We saw in the reading this morning in Genesis chapter 20 that just as God had promised Sarah, so he fulfilled his promise. And this is all over the Bible. Uh, Joshua 21, 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. 1 Kings 8, 15. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he had promised with his mouth to, the, to David. 1 Kings 8.56, blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he has promised. Not one word has failed of all of his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. Of course in the New Testament, this is all over uh, the, the work, the person and the work of Christ. Matthew 26.56, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples left and fled. Or Acts 3.18, what uh, Peter preached. Uh, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. There are a, a multitude of places just like this. Why does the scripture draw attention to this? Thus was the scripture fulfilled. The word was fulfilled. Uh, what God foretold, he thus fulfilled. Why? Well, the same reason why we have these seemingly less important verses in front of us this morning. God wants us to see that he never lies. 
Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Has he spoken it? Will he not fulfill it? Someone might say, well, Pastor Josh, it's in our passage this morning, it's not so much that God promised that such and such would happen, but rather that God merely predicted that this would take place. Well, that's not how the Bible uh, speaks of these events. In fact, our, our confession rightly says that um, God from all eternity did by his most wise and holy counsel freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, although God knows whatsoever comes to pass, it, he does not decree anything because he foresees it in the future. God didn't tell Moses these things were going to happen because he simply knew what was going to take place. He is not a predictor. God is not a predictor. God is an ordainer. He is an appointer. He is a planner. Counsel the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 33, 11. So all these things that we just saw, Aaron meeting Moses, Aaron speaking to the people, the people listening to Moses, these things happened precisely because God promised them and he fulfilled his word. So then let's examine ourselves. You know, we, we get the advantage of looking at Moses' life on paper. And, and we can say, <laughs> look at all this time that God devoted to trying to convince Moses how foolish Moses was. 19 verses. And then in, in two or three quick verses, we see that God fulfilled his promise just like he said he would. So beloved, if your, <laughs> if your life was written out all on paper... How often does God have to try to convince you that he's not lying? That he really will fulfill his promise to you? What would others see if the story of your life was, was spread out before them? Or perhaps more to the point, are you trusting God's promises right now? What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? What promises perhaps are you doubting that God has promised in his word to you? On the other hand, there are some of you in this room who have been deeply betrayed and deceived and lied to by those who are closest to you. And perhaps you feel closed off because... You don't know if you can ever trust anyone again. You feel like David in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, someone I trusted, who has shared my bread, has turned against me. And you think, how can I ever trust anyone, let alone God again? Well, I would just encourage you that God is not like man. What are some of the reasons why men lie? Well, first of all, some men break their promises because of their ignorance. 
uh, they hastily promise something before all the information is, is in and they fail to calculate one vital piece of truth. And so they break their promise. But beloved, God is never ignorant of anything. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He can never break a promise because he's ignorant. Secondly, some men break their promises because of their impotence. They lack power. They are not strong enough to keep their promise because some stronger force prevails against them. But God is almighty. Who is stronger than God? Isaiah 40, 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. Or sometimes men break their promises because they're vicious and sinful. They intentionally lie and deceive because they are bad men. But beloved, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God can never lie. And let this comfort you. You... The God who redeemed you is a God who can never deceive you, who can never betray you. And even if you find yourself like Moses prior to this, doubting, 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 and disobeying and disobeying, what does God still do for Moses? He still keeps his promise. Even though Moses has blown it a number of times now, God doesn't change. He's not a man. If he has said it, he will fulfill it. So that's our first point. You belong to a God who can never lie. He will always fulfill his promise to you. Let's look at our second point then. The Exodus began with a counterfeit faith. How did the people respond to Aaron's words and these miraculous signs? Well, let's look at verse 31. It says, and the people believed. We're just going to camp right there. And the people believed. Israel hears the words of the Lord and they believe. Well, that's wonderful, right? Well, let's take a closer look. How many signs did Aaron have to perform for these people? Look at, uh, look at the end of verse 30. Aaron did the signs, plural, in the sight of the people. So the implication is that he did more than one. Presumably he did all three. Well, what does that tell us? Well, John Currid helps us here. He says this, quote, The fact that all three signs had to be performed in the sight of the people indicates that one miracle was not sufficient for them to be convinced. Yeah, that doesn't work. The, the, the staff with the serpent, show us more. The hand in, with the leprosy, not enough. Oh, blood, water into blood. Oh, okay, I, I guess we believe now. The Lord anticipated this unbelief back in chapter 
back at the, in verse 8, where he says, look, if they don't believe the first sign, then show them the second sign. And if they don't believe that sign, then show them this sign. So this is actually a major theme of the Exodus event, that the people of Israel frequently live by sight and not by faith. So what kind of belief was this then? Well, let's turn to the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 8. We're asking the question, what kind of faith was this that Israel had? And here we are reading about Jesus giving the parable of the sower. Remember that some of the seed is snatched up by the birds. Some of the seed is uh, scorched by the sun. Some is choked out by the weeds. And then some lands in fertile soil where it produces fruit. And one thing that this parable does is it teaches us the difference between true saving faith and counterfeit faith. So let's begin at chapter 11, Luke chapter 8, verse 11, where Jesus explains the parable. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So no saving faith here. No belief of any kind. Verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. So these have a temporary faith. Verse 14. As for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. They at least heard the word, don't know if they believed. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience so here's the question what type of faith does israel have here in exodus 431 well let's consider what happened to israel's believing when their time of testing came you can either flip to these verses quickly or just write them down exodus chapter 14 Verses 11 and 12, this is when Pharaoh had Israel pinned up against the Red Sea. And how do they respond? Says, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Then there was the incident in Exodus 32, verse 4, when in Moses' absence, the people commission Aaron to make a golden calf to worship. And when they make the golden calf, they hold it up and they say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then when they're in the wilderness... They hear the report of giants in the promised land. 
And the whole congregation said in Numbers chapter 14, 3 and 4, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. No, Israel as a whole did not savingly believe. They had a temporal faith. They had a counterfeit faith that failed in the time of testing. We can see this quickly in in two places, definitive statements in the New Testament. First is Hebrews 3, 16 through 19. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Or Jude chapter 1, verse 5, the other definitive statement in the New Testament. Jude says, now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So it, it is true that some did savingly believe. That's true. Moses believed. Others believed, but a large number of them had a counterfeit faith. That brings us then to our second principle. There are some who believe in the Lord, but in the end prove to have a counterfeit faith. There are some who believe in the Lord, but in the end have a counterfeit faith. Children, Boys and girls, perhaps you remember in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is saved and he starts to travel towards the celestial city and he persuades a companion named Pliable to come with him. Pliable believes. But then when, they, when they're first tested at the slew of despond and they start sinking in the muck, Pliable turns back to the city of destruction. He turns back and he is never seen by Christian again. Dear congregation, why is it important to draw attention to counterfeit faith here? Well, for one reason, the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, tells us specifically to look back at the Exodus and he says, These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Israel's counterfeit faith is a warning for us. And and warnings are precious. Children, uh, adults, how, how many of you are so glad that warnings exist when your children are running out into the street? Warnings are loving, saving um, communications. 
Israel experienced miracles. They saw the signs Aaron performed. They saw the ten plagues. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw Egypt ruined. Yet many of them were pretenders who never trusted the Lord. Instead of um, being saved in the end, they were destroyed. And so test yourself. Is your faith for real? Will your faith stand up to the time of testing? You know, there's only one other couple that has been here longer than I have at, at this particular church. I've, I've seen the, the whole congregation turn over. And in my time as a pastor since 2010, I have seen uh, amazing stuff. I've seen a Christian empire in Seattle fall because the pastor had a counterfeit faith. I have experienced a man from this congregation who completely surrendered himself over to the homosexual lifestyle and left the faith. I've seen husbands and wives deny the faith so that they could run off with unbelieving lovers. I've seen homes destroyed. I've seen children abandoned. This is not a problem that's out there. Counterfeit faith is not out there. Counterfeit faith is in here. So fathers and and mothers, fathers and mothers, can your children taste the, the good fruits of your faith? Is your faith real at home? Any one of us could put on a show in this building. But does your faith remain when you leave? Counterfeit faith doesn't only, uh, doesn't only destroy lives here, but in the end, uh, it destroys souls. Jesus said in Matthew 7, and 23, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's the first reason why it's important to draw attention to Israel's counterfeit faith to warn us. But the second reason why it's important is because it magnifies the grace of God. How does it do that? Well, there was some Israelites who did truly believe. Who made them different than their counterfeit neighbors? Who made Moses different than Datham and Abiram? Who made Peter different from Judas? This is what Paul asked in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? The difference between the counterfeits in Israel and those who truly believe was the free grace of God. Faith is not something that we can just conjure up on our own. True saving faith is a gift of God just as much as the breath in your lungs is a gift from God. The scripture says, for by grace have you been saved through faith and this grace and faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
So that's our second point, that there is counterfeit faith and there is saving faith. And the difference between the two is the free grace of God alone. Let's look at our third point then. The exodus began with undeserved love. And let's look at the entirety of verse 31 now. We read, And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Uh, Some of you at this point might say, yeah, I think you're stretching the text because, look, they bowed their heads and worshipped. How can you say it's counterfeit faith? Well, refer to point two. Go back to Luke 8. When they received the word, what did they do? They received it with joy. They celebrated the word for a time. It looked like they worshipped. That aside... What's on display in this passage? What's on display is is actually not the counterfeit faith of Israel. What's on display is the undeserved love of Yahweh. Israel, uh, um, it says that Israel heard that the Lord had visited them. That he had seen their affliction. Yahweh had seen their affliction. This is not how we see things, like we, we observe things. Uh, what this means is that, that uh, as Joel Beakey says here, it is though God counted their oppression in Egypt as his own. He saw their affliction and he counted it as their own. Listen um, to how over and over again in Scripture, when God's people are suffering, he counts their suffering as his own suffering. Uh, Judges 10, 16. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. He could bear their misery no longer. Isaiah 63, 9. In all of their affliction, he was afflicted. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. Zechariah 2.8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plunder you, for he, touch, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. R- real quick on that. Um, my son, I won't name names, but my son has had three injuries to his eye in three successive years. We were um, camping and... He stepped on this branch, and the branch came up and whacked him right in the eye, tore his cornea. And if you've ever had an eye injury, uh, the eye is the most sensitive place to, <laughs> it's the most painful place to have an injury. The next summer, we, we had to go back to the campground and, and quickly pack all our stuff. We were up at Boiling Springs. It took us an hour and a half to get back down, take an emergency room. He's screaming the whole time. It was, it was the best camping trip ever. Uh, the next summer, we were at another camping trip, a church camping trip, and he's wrestling with an older boy, and he jams his own eye with his thumb, his other eye. <laughs> then we had to go back to the hospital again. And then the next summer, and these are two different eyes at this point, and then the next summer, he was playing with our dog, and our dog jumped up on his face and 
scratched his eye. I think we need to get him one of those Bill Lambeer masks. Remember from the NBA? This verse is saying, if anyone touches you, it's like they're injuring my eye. When the Lord covenanted with Israel, he looked upon their suffering as his own suffering. And so he visited them. Verse 31 says, meaning he could bear Israel's misery no longer, so he came down to free them. And it's at this point precisely where we see the Exodus is a paradigm of the gospel. How does the Exodus start? Who is on Yahweh's side when he went to go rescue his people? Yahweh faced the devilish seed of the serpent in Pharaoh. He was against him. He faced the doubting and disobedience of his prophet in Moses. He was against him, at least initially. And he faced the duplicitous and idolatrous faith of his own people, Israel. The only one in this story who really desired to set Israel free was God, was God alone. And that brings us then to our third principle this morning. We have been redeemed not because we loved God, but because he loved us. Children, boys and girls, perhaps you've read that R.C. Sproul story, the, what is it, the the Prince's Poison Cup, one of the best kids' stories there is. It begins with a great king who builds a kingdom for his people. And he, he says to them, you can drink from any stream out of my kingdom, but don't drink from that fountain over there because that fountain will poison you. What do they do? Well, through the influence of the dark stranger, they drink from the fountain and immediately their hearts are poisoned and they turn against the king and they hate him and they go out into the desert to live building the city of man but god the king sees how miserable his people are they're miserable they live out their days hating one another and being hated and so he comes up with a plan where he, he, he brings his prince and he gives him a golden cup and he says, if you go to the city of man and you drink from that fountain there, you drink in their poison, you will heal them. So the prince goes with his friends and they get to the city and lo and behold, what happens in the city? Of course, it's, it's muddy and mucky and trashy and the homes are broken and everybody is miserable. How do the people respond to the prince? They hate him. The very one that has come to save him, they hate him. They spit on him. They, they, they slap him. And his disciples are so, his friends are so scared that they run away. The only one left in the center of the city is the prince. He's the only one working for the freedom of this people. They didn't want to be freed. And that's exactly how the exodus begins. Yahweh is the only one who wants to free his people. Beloved, the exodus teaches us 
that God's love is antecedent. It comes first. Joel Beakey says it like this. God's love is always antecedent, unconditionally taking the initiative, whereas our love is consequent. It's a response to his love. Our love never comes first. We are just like those citizens who want nothing to do with the prince. We have been redeemed from our slavery to sin only because God loved us first. 1 John 4.19, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that's the most unbelievable thing about the gospel. Israel gave every reason for God to forsake her. But he loved her still. But it gets even better. If we, if we look to the end of the Exodus account, how was it that Israel was finally freed? What broke? What broke Egypt? It was the angel of death that killed the firstborn. The Passover lamb was slain. Who is that Passover lamb? It's Christ. You see, it's not... Just that God loved the unlovable, he loved the unlovable and sent his son to die for the unlovable. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. It's Christ's sacrifice that broke our slavery. In our affliction, he was afflicted. He himself bore our sins upon the tree. By his wounds, we are healed. So two points of application then as we conclude. First of all, we should draw comfort from this passage. Comfort yourselves. We, we, we have heard the warning this morning against the counterfeit faith. And of course, we all need to examine ourselves to see if our faith is genuine. But, but here's the thing. At the end of your examination, if you discover, hey, I really do have saving faith. Guess what it is? Uh, guess what? It, it is also a sinning faith. You're going to find sin in your faith. And here's what you need to hear. And this is what this passage shows, that even when you have sin in your faith, God still loves you. In fact, incomprehensively, your sin moves God more to pity than it does to anger. Puritan Thomas Goodwin puts it like this, your very sins move him to pity you more than to anger. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that have some loathsome disease. Do you get angry at your children when they get sick? No. How ridiculous. Yes, God hates the sickness of sin and he wants to destroy in us, but that draws out his bowels of compassion towards us. Our sin cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Israel's sin did not repulse God, it drew him closer. Secondly, and finally, I exhort you, in light of Yahweh's unconquerable love, to bow your head and worship him. That's how this passage ends this morning. 
chapter 4 ends. End of verse 31, it says that Israel bowed their heads and worshipped. That's the purpose of the exodus. That's the purpose of the gospel. It's the purpose of the universe. That we would worship the Lord. Both in body, signifying they bowed their heads, and in their soul. It came from their heart. That's the purpose of your life, loved ones. Everything has a purpose. A baseball bat has the purpose of hitting the ball. A cup has the purpose of holding liquid. These microphones, when they're working, has the purpose of amplifying voice. You have a chief purpose, a main purpose. Your life's purpose is to worship the Lord, to adore Him, to honor Him, to love Him. To glorify him, to magnify him, to celebrate him, to be glad in him. That's your purpose. Listen to how the psalm puts it. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this clear sight of how the exodus began. That everyone was against you, not only the enemies, not only your own prophet, not only your own people, but, but everyone. You alone wanted to redeem your people and you accomplished it, God. And we thank you that you have done the same for us. That we, in, we were not looking for you. You were pursuing us. That though we hated you, you loved us. That though we had forsaken you, you promised that you will never forsake us. So, Father, help us to fight the good fight. Help us to finish the race. Help us have a faith that stands in times of testing. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.